Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Knut, Henry the Second, Richard the Lionheart, Edward the First, Elizabeth the First, and William the Penguin the Third. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. We've done that. We have done that and we are now doing the playoffs whereby we've got 18 monarchs that we thought were the very best of Mm -hmm. the best. We have three groups, each with six monarchs in them. Yep. We'll do one episode on each looking at their biography and how they performed in battle, scandal and how well they ruled, subject to the team, whether they've got... Well, they've all got that certain something, the Rex Factor, but who is the wretchedest of them all? Yeah. At the end of each episode, I will vote, Ali will vote, and then you, the listeners, can vote. Uh, The links will be on Twitter, at Rex Factor Pod, on our Facebook page, and on our new blog, rexfactor.wordpress.com. And the top three from each group will go through to the semi-finals. So, we'll go through chronological order for each one. First up, Canute. Okay, let's, let's have him. Born in 995, 1,019 years ago. Wow, that's ridiculous. Came to the throne in 1016 at the age of 21. That's a bit young. Uh, he is a Viking. Yeah, yeah, properly. Like, actually a Viking An king. An actual Viking. Um, a Viking king. That's <laughs> a song. Send them in. Prior to his reign, England under the Saxon Ethelred the Unready had been a rich state, but it was becoming increasingly divided, mm. and its defences are weak, whereas Denmark was strong and increasingly uh, centralised. Right. Canute's father, Sven Forkbeard, successfully invaded England in 1013, but died very early the next year. Yeah. Good so, episode, that. I enjoyed that. Good one. episode. So Ethelred came back. However, Canute raises an army from Scandinavia, returns to England in 1015 with a great big force. In 1016, Ethelred died to be replaced by Edmund Ironside. Mm-hmm. Very strong opposition, but Canute defeats him at the Battle of Assendon, and they agreed to share the country and then the one who died last would inherit the whole kingdom. Oh, that's nice. And thankfully, Edmund Ironside had a toilet accident with a spear or arrow <laughs> going upwards. Oh, crumbs. A few weeks that's later, terrible. and Canute became king. I am not laughing at murder, just make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Canute rule as king, he pays off his army, sends most of them home, reinstated the laws of Edgar the Peaceable, and made very strong links with the church, particularly the Archbishop of York. So it's Christian. Down. He is Christian. He was actually baptised, and his baptismal name is Lambert. Oh, I see why he's stuck with news. And as well as England, he actually has something of a North Sea Empire, so he took the thrones mm. of Denmark, Norway, and parts of Sweden. That's pretty impressive. But he dies in 1035, only 40 years old, unfortunately, mm. for Canute. Had a Viking ever had as much territory? Cause they no, no. Really. Wow. Well, well done, that chap. Good start, but he's up against strong opposition, Henry II. Yeah. I mean, they don't get any stronger. Born in 1133 and came to the throne in 1154 when he was 21 years old. Very young. Um, his grandfather, Henry I, had had a very successful reign, uh, but he only left a daughter, Matilda, as his heir, and he failed to support her so that her cousin Stephen ended up taking the throne. Mm. But she resisted, leading to a 19-year civil war known as the Anarchy. Blooming Stephen. Henry entered the fray in 1147 when he was 14. He had his first Oh, exhibition. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but his power increased. He became the Duke of Normandy in 1150, 
inherited the territory of Anjou from his father, Geoffrey of Anjou, in 1151, and then he married Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yes, incredibly formidable woman, which obviously brings him more territory. 1153, Stephen's son died, and he recognised Henry as his successor. Uh, so, Henry is now king, and he establishes royal control after all these years of civil war, and he also consolidates what's now been called the Angevin Empire. Mm. So he's not only got England, but he's got West and Central France, uh, or the left of France, as he put well. it. A big part of his reign, of course, was a conflict with his Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, yes. uh, led to Becket being murdered at the altar of Canterbury Cathedral. Mm. The main problem for him is actually his family. Oh, yes, his sons. Number of adult sons, which is usually a good thing, Mm. but his relationship with Eleanor of Aquitaine broke down and she encouraged them to rebel. And particularly in 1173 to 74, there was what was called the Great Revolt, where the young Henry, his son, Geoffrey and Richard, the future Lionheart, all Mm. rebel against him, as well as the King of France, the King of Scotland and various others. Mm -hmm. Henry sees them all off. Yeah, naturally. Holds down his territory. Young Henry and Geoffrey both die, but Richard, the older son, was suspicious that Henry was showing favour to John, Mm. the younger one, and he feared that John was going to inherit unless Richard got it tied down. As a result of which, when Richard wants to go crusading after the fall of Jerusalem in 1187, encouraged by the French king, Philip Augustus, Richard and... Philip join together, rebel against Henry, and Henry is forced to submit to terms, probably dying from a bleeding ulcer anyway, and dies in 1189 at the age of 56, having heard that John, as well, his favourite son, had rebelled too. Ah, from great beginnings. And next up, it is that rebellious son, Richard the Lionheart. He was born in 1157 and comes to the throne in 1189 when he's 32 years old. Older. So, Henry's got that extensive Angevin empire. Philip Augustus of France had previously played the sons off against Henry. Mm. He's now going to start trying to play the brothers off, so Mm. Richard and John. Uh, But the big thing for Richard is that in 1187, Saladin captured Jerusalem from the Christians and a new crusade, a third crusade, was going to be embarked upon, and Richard takes a cross, and he wants to go. Okay. So, he becomes king, has his coronation, raises a lot of money, and then goes off crusading. Mm-hmm. So, job done, go and have some fun. Breaks the siege of Acre, won a great victory at uh, Arsouf against Saladin. Mm-hmm. Got within 12 miles of Jerusalem, but had to turn back and make a peace treaty. Because... He realised that there were divisions in the leadership that really the supply lines couldn't have been maintained. Oh. On his way back, unfortunately, he's imprisoned by Leopold of Austria. Right. This is a bit random. A bit random. Um, huge ransom had to be paid to get a Richard king's ransom. King, well, indeed, yes. a king's ransom. And Philip took back a lot of the French territories of the Angevin Empire while he was in prison. Right. So when Richard gets let out, he spends his remaining years just taking them all back again. Oh, as you do. As you do. Uh, eventually, they called a truce. He was preferring to go on another crusade. But uh, he was shot in the shoulder in a minor skirmish, and his wound turned gangrenous, and he died in 1199 at the age of 41. But he did congratulate the person who shot him. He did. Yeah, which was otherwise. Next up. Who is it? Uh, remaining neutral at all times. Oh, of course. Edward I. I've never heard about him, tell me. Well, he was born in 1239 <laughs> and came to the throne in 1272. When he was yeah. 33 years old. Older. Similar to Richard. King John had lost most of the Angevin Empire to France and made to sign the Magna Carta, starting yeah. to limit royal power. His son, Henry III, failed to win back the French lions and clashes again with nobles over the extensive royal power. So Simon de Montfort is seeking to curb this and give more power to Parliament. Yeah. Indeed, 
he actually imprisons Henry III and Edward at one stage, but Edward escapes, yeah. defeats Simon de Montfort, and then goes off on the Crusades in 1270. So that sounds pretty good so far, that's all I'm saying. Yep, yep, yep. As king, he puts down various Welsh rebellions with his grand campaigns and castle building, um, and actually cements conquest of Wales. Mm. Big smile. <laughs> Parliament becomes a more regular and powerful body, and he becomes the arbiter of power in Scotland when mm. there's a, effectively a vacancy yeah. in the crown. That becomes his big campaign of attempted, keyword, <laughs> conquest. Uh, 1306, Robert the Bruce declared himself king of Scotland, so Edward prepares another campaign, but is ill and he dies en route in 1307 at the age of 68, his last wish being that his bones would continue with the campaign so he could witness the defeat of Scotland. Excellent. Well, I mean, you know, that, that sounds like he just missed his opportunity and would have done rather well. Who's to say? Uh, we'll yeah. see you later time. Who knows? Much later now, a very different style of rule, Elizabeth I. Yes. The first of our Rex Factor queens. Yes. She was born in 1533, which was a mere 481 years ago. That's nothing. And she comes to the throne in 1558 at the age of 25. Her father, Henry VIII, had really been the apex of royal power. He'd broken from the Church mm. of Rome. We've got all these sort of religious shenanigans going on. Her brother, Edward VI, oversaw an ardent sort of puritanical Protestantism, mm. whereas Mary I becomes queen and she is Catholic, so she sweeps it all away. Um, Elizabeth is Protestant, but she's quite happy to show outward conformity. Right. So she goes along pretending to be Catholic, but Mary's probably never really convinced by it. <laughs> but Mary doesn't have any children and Elizabeth becomes queen. And the big thing for her immediately, before she can even get crowned, is the religious settlement. Real conflict going on, but Elizabeth gets a more moderate settlement in which it only requires effectively outward conformity. To be Protestant. It's a difficult period for Elizabeth, though. She's under constant threats from Mary, Queen of Scots, who in 1568, kicked out of Scotland, mm. just turns to England. Thinking she'll be safe. Thinking she'll be safe. She's put under house arrest, yeah. but lots of plots then start to centralise around Mary, who is effectively the next best claimant to the throne yeah. after Elizabeth. In 1570 as well, Elizabeth is excommunicated, meaning that it's OK for Catholics to assassinate her in the eyes <laughs> of the Pope. Well. So we see lots of plots to kill her, to replace her with Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, Mary is eventually executed in yeah. 1587. See Spain really just say, we've had enough now. Yeah. So Philip II of Spain launches the Spanish Armada to conquer England. Yes. And so it's the Spanish just going, your dad was bad enough, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Here's the invasion that we promised. Enough is enough. OK. How do they get on? Uh, they didn't do very well. A oh. huge invasion, but effectively really broken by bad weather mm. and shipwrecks. And Drake. And Francis Drake, but of course. Mainly so, Elizabeth is secure. She's seen off the Spanish, but old friends and old ministers start to die off. She gets a bit lonely. Mm. Until she finally passes away in 1603 at the age of 69. That's quite old. William III. Very, I mean, <clears throat> tell me about him. A very serious man. <laughs> <laughs> he was born in 1650 and comes to the throne in 1689 at the age of 38. Ongoing tensions where you've got a Protestant parliament against this Catholic sympathising Stuart royal family, mm. and which becomes actually Catholic with James II coming to the throne in 1685. And James has strong links to Louis XIV, who is an all-powerful, absolutist Catholic monarch in France. And he's the European power now, rather than the Spanish. He is the European power now, yeah. France are the big players. The Netherlands, the Dutch, which is where William comes from, mm. are Protestant. They are enjoying a golden age, but under attack from Louis XIV. Right. So, end stage left, William III. 
1672, he sees off an invasion from Louis XIV mm. and Charles II, in fact. Oh, this is when he's being a boss in, um, and just sort of... Yeah, just put, yeah, yeah tiny yeah, yeah, territory, yeah. but he kicks yeah. everybody out. Charles wants to get him back on side, so he gets married to James II's daughter, Mary. And when James has a son, there is now going to be a Catholic succession mm. and a Catholic king to follow yeah. James. Yeah. So, William is invited to invade England yes. by people from Parliament. And he does, and he does so very successfully. He brings a huge fleet over. James has a look at it and thinks, I'm not sure, and flees. It wasn't very good, was it, James? It wasn't very good. Abandons the throne, and William and Mary are declared joint rulers. Which is a bit weird. William focuses initially on defeating uh, James, so he goes off to Ireland and beats him in the Battle of the Boyne. Oh, famous, yeah, lovely. And uh, also he builds a European coalition against Louis Fourteenth. He's really... Um come a long way from being a little prince to he really has. equal. Mary often region at home while William's off mm. doing his battle. She's quite popular, but William and the country devastated when she dies in 1694. Mm. So William carries on ruling by himself. Poor health, 1701-1702, and he dies of a fever after falling from his horse when it hit a molehill in 1702 at the age of 51. Mm. So it's the Jacobites, the supporters of James in exile, would then toast to the little gentleman in black velvet. <laughs> <laughs> so, those are the reigns of those yeah. six monarchs. We're now going to look at them factor by factor. Battleliness! So, Canute. Yeah, he's going to have a lot here, surely. He's pretty good. So, the 1015 16 campaign where he invades England, he comes over with a fleet of 200 longships and 10,000 troops. Oh. Huge army amassed from all over Scandinavia. Harry's Wessex into submission. He wins the defection of key nobles like Edric Strayona and Thorkel the Tall. <laughs> Yeah. You don't want him on side, Exactly. And then 1016, the Battle of Assenden, where Edmund Ironside and Canute, their armies, fight each other. Yeah. There have been lots of skirmishes, but this was the big all-out battle. Edric Striona crossed sides again, because he'd gone to Canute, then he went to Edmund, and then he goes back to Canute oh. during the battle. Right. Devastating uh, casualties for the Saxon nobles, but Canute effectively captures the kingdom. Job done, Wow. He then establishes dominance over Britain as well. In 1014 in Ireland, we have the Battle of Clontarf, where we had an encounter between North Leinster um, Alliance and Brian Baroom, who was the Irish High King. Brian Broom? Brian Baroom. OK. It's a huge battle. All the leaders on both sides are killed. So there's a massive power vacuum. He doesn't invade Ireland, but he has dominance now of the Irish seas, so the trade routes and all that sort well, of stuff... Is. Pretty much is. And in fact, coins minted in Dublin are of a similar design to Canute's. Oh, right. And also in 1031, he goes off to Scotland to receive the submission of three Scottish kings. Uh, yeah, that all goes well. That's yeah, right. including yeah. Macbeth. Huh. Yes. And then, as we said, he secures Denmark in 1018 when his brother died. Norway and Sweden allied against Denmark. But then 1026 to 27, he subjugates some Swedish provinces. And 1028, he took 50 ships to Trondheim in Norway and was crowned king of Norway when the other guy basically submits to So what's he got now? He's got all of Britain. Well, he's got all of England and recognised as superior in, in Scotland. Scotland. Ireland. The, the sea. The sea, right. Raids Wales a little bit, as you do. Yeah, they love it. Poor Welsh. Um, and then all of Scandinavia. Sweden, well, Denmark, Norway. As he puts it himself, he's king of all England and Denmark and the Norwegians and some of the Swedes. Okay. So he hasn't got all of Sweden, <laughs> and he acknowledges as such. Some of the Swedes. Some okay. of them. Right, that's the title. So that's pretty good. Mm, yeah, well, very good. Against him, however, he bans berserking. 
But that's their thing. That's what they do. What else have they got? Uh, 10, 14 to 16 campaign. It's all going very well until Edmund Ironside becomes king. Mm -hmm. And he actually suffers some reverses at that point. Okay. So he's quite fortunate to get that betrayal from Edric Striona because there was almost a sense that Tide was starting to turn against him. Uh, and even then, actually, he was sharing the kingdom for a few weeks. So even what? after defeating Edmund Ironside, they had that agreement that uh, yeah. one of them okay. died. Yeah. So even after this victory, he still mm. hasn't managed to... That must be a bureaucratic nightmare. Just die. And there's actually a lack of big battles for this. For all of this North Sea Empire, it's largely established through sort of show of force and dominance. Assenden's the only real proper big battle that we've got much evidence of. And arguably he's overstretched. Um, One of his sons becomes regent in Norway, but is hugely unpopular, and Magnus the Good kicks him out in 1035. Yeah. Um, Normandy was housing Ethelred's surviving sons and they were looking to support an invasion until the Duke uh, died in Normandy Mm. and it all falls apart quite soon after he dies so there's a sense that maybe it was it was going to fall apart even if it said like yeah it would have been difficult to keep it going Mm. the map for a while was was Canute coloured another man who coloured the map in his own colours was Henry II he did rather Angevin Empire, uh, so you've got Anjou, Aquitaine, Normandy, Maine, Poitou and Gascony in France. Yeah, I can't really name any other regions. Bordeaux! Bordeaux, okay. But it's a huge amount of territory, as I say, like you said, the left of France. Yeah. And some of the centre as well. Right. And England, obviously. Let's not forget. And he maintains it by moving at great speed all across. So he seemed to appear out of nowhere to his enemies. He'd just pop up because he could just do these incredible marches and... So, castles have been a problem during the anarchy, but uh, they're called stalemates, so just a few people could hold them, and you can't get in. The old tactic used to be, waste the land around them and siege them out. Henry just got as many men as he could and storms the castle straight (laughs) out. Nice. He gets uh, rid of some of the old barons' castles and builds newer and better ones for himself, best, of course, being Dover Castle. Incredible force. Scotland, he reclaimed some of the territories lost in the anarchy, like Cumbria and Northumberland. And in the Great Revolt, when William the Lion of Scotland invades England, he gets captured at the Battle of Annick. Right. So in order to be released, he has to acknowledge Henry as his feudal lord, pay the English army its fees, and then uh, English troops garrison southern Scotland. So he takes Scotland? He doesn't take Scotland, but he's got troops in southern Scotland, which includes Edinburgh. Yeah. Ireland. 1171, he becomes the first English king to actually visit and claim authority. Deals with uh, the increasing power of uh, the noble known as Strongbow. Nice name, yeah. Mm. And of course, there was the Great Revolt, 1173 to 74. Louis VII of three of Henry's sons, egged on by Eleanor of Aquitaine. 18 months it all rages on for. It's going all over the place, but Henry sees it all off and mm. maintains his territories. Yeah. He's yeah, the man. Well done. It's good, isn't it? It is good, but somehow there is criticism to be had. Well, go on. Angevin Empire, very much a modern term. Right. It wasn't a centralised empire. So, like, you were asking whether he considered himself king of England or all of these things. They're all just territories that he kinds of owns, but they're not one whole uh, yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's lots of bits, really. And he's always intending to split it amongst his sons. He's not a very good campaigner, oddly. What? He patrols. He patrols all over the place. He defends his territories. But actually, whenever he tries to go on the offensive... He doesn't tend to do so well. So in 1059, there was a campaign in Toulouse. He invades with a large army, thinking that the French king was okay with it. But then the French king was actually there at the time, and he thought, can't really do it with France being there. He also tries to conquer Wales when they rebel. 1164-65, unable to make any progress, almost killed at the Battle of Krogan. 
So they do agree to the borders as they were before the anarchy. Mm. So he sort of establishes a, an um, element of dominance, but he doesn't manage to conquer. Just, it, just beats the Welsh up a bit. For beats them up a bit, again. but they beat him up a little bit as well. Okay. He doesn't get his own way. And as we see in this group, conquering Wales is possible. Yeah, yes, it certainly is. And his family management's the main problem, really. He's the prime mover in events until the 1170s, but then once his sons become adults, Henry's kind of always playing catch-up and reacting. Mm. So he's a prisoner of events, really. And ultimately, his preference for John causes the Great Revolt and Richard's final rebellion, yeah. in which he has to submit, surrender, pay Philip homage. It's a bit of an ignominious climax to yeah. the reign. Yeah, true. Richard the Lionheart. Is. This is where he comes into his own. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff here. The Third Crusade, he starts off in Sicily, yeah. on his way okay. to the Middle East. His sister Joan was the recently widowed queen of Sicily. Okay. And she had been locked up by the people that had taken over okay. after the king had died. So, Richard arrives in all his splendour, on a ship, standing on a raised platform at the front in full monarchic regalia with horns playing. All right. You imagine him with his sword held yeah, aloft as well. Yeah. Uh, captures the capital of Messina, frees his sister. Oh, I was waiting for him to go overboard or something. He, <laughs> he just does it. He pulls just, it off. Just does it. Okay. His sister's obviously a bit accident prone because, along with Richard's fiance Berengaria, they get shipwrecked in Cyprus and are captured by Cyprus's oh, ruler. So Richard does what he does, rescues them, conquers the entire island, and establishes a really good stepping stone to the Middle East. Yeah. And I love that. That's not even part of his plan. No. It just improvises along the yeah. way. Oh, to Cyprus then. At Acre, he helped break the siege that had been going on for two years. He fell ill, mm. but he was still directing the uh, conflict and he was being taken around on a stretcher firing crossbows at the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he loves it, doesn't he? He loves the battleness. At Arsouf, on the march, Saladin was uh, hitting them with hit and run attacks, but Richard maintained the discipline of the march, didn't let anyone run off chasing them, kept them together because he mm. knew that they'd be vulnerable if they all broke yeah. up. Once the battle starts, he doesn't let a counter-attack take place until the Hospitallers charge, at which point he reacts quickly, gives the orders for a general charge. And well, because they, they go not on his orders. Yeah. So they've gone, he thinks, I've been up on his He daps, but still, he keeps stopping and then starting the advances again three times until Saladin's troops go off, because he knows that one of their things is to stretch the army and then cut them off if they get excited. Oh, like a false retreat. Yeah. So he just keeps on stopping it, consolidate, start, stop, consolidate, start. Right. Keeps the discipline. Okay. And has a victory against Saladin. Yeah. Which is no mean feat. As you said, he then had to conquer all of his old French territories after he'd been imprisoned. Mm. So 1194 to 1199, he builds alliances across Europe, recovers most of Normandy, retook Loche, which is near Touraine, as well as Tauerberg and Angoulême. So he'd largely got it back to how it was mm. before he got imprisoned. Yeah, but, you know, that's just getting back to how it was, isn't it? Getting back how it was, but John promptly loses a whole lot. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it, it isn't easy to keep it all together. Oh, John, if only you were. <laughs> if only. And he's got this incredible reputation. When he was um, released, Philip of France wrote to John, Look to yourself, the devil is loose. Ooh. Oh, God. And he was this sort of ogre almost for um, Muslim families for centuries afterwards. They sort of used to say to uh, naughty children, if you don't clean up your room, Melek Rick will come and get you. So he's got this legendary battley status yeah. everywhere. Oh, crumbs, yeah. I mean, proper, he's got Rex Hatcher in the Middle East. That's something we haven't had mm -hmm. yet at all since. Next up, mm. um, probably not quite as good, Edward I. Uh, well, yeah, OK, go on, tell me about him. Initially, he defeats Simon de Montfort while uh, prince. He had been captured, but he escaped by... He, try, he got them to let him try out all these horses, tires them all out, and then on the last one, just charges off, and they can't chase That's them. That's genius. 
Uh, he then outflanks de Montfort and defeats and kills him at the Battle of Evesham, mm. Henry III back on the throne. In Wales, he led a huge campaign in 1277, penning the rebels into Snowdonia. Usually it gets to winter and everybody goes home, but Edward was like, no, no, just keep going yeah. until it stops. Quite right. They give in and submit to him. But 1282-83, Flewellyn and Dafford uh, both rebel again in a national uprising against Edward. Errol. They both are killed, quite brutally, and Wales formally conquered. Yeah. And Good he done. does this... Partly, of course, through those castles. Mm -hmm. Ring of Iron. Huge castles built very quickly and very well with those new concentric designs. World Heritage Sites, Graham. Benefit of concentric design mm. is... Well, if one, one wall falls, you go back to the next one, you've still got a castle there. So if it's a curtain wall, which is how they were, you make one you make one gap in it, you get over the wall in one place, the whole castle's gone. So they're much more solid, mm. can't break them down, and thus... Total dominance over the local populace. Oh, they're just amazing. Bomaris, oh, the unfinished masterpiece. <laughs> and Scotland, of course, he steals the uh, Stone of Scone. Yeah. Where they used to be crowned. At the Battle of Falkirk in 1298, he defeats uh, William Wallace, mm. despite having been trodden on by his horse the night before. Really? But I didn't know that. In 1304, Siege of Stirling, he rides heroically close to the walls to inspire his troops. Yeah. Doesn't get put off when a crossbow lodges in his saddle or his uh, horse gets felled by a stone from the siege engine. <laughs> now that is hero. But, in some ways, was he a bit of a wimp? I don't think so, but let's find out. <laughs> Under de Montfort, the reason Edward got captured in the first place was that he was very reckless in the Battle of Lewis. He chased the Londoners off the battlefield and consequently left the Royalist forces rather exposed. Mm. Could have been the end of the monarchy <laughs> yeah. if de Montfort had been a bit more ruthless. The Crusades was actually uh, Edward's real big ambition yeah. in his life. And he goes over in 1270, doesn't really achieve anything at all, and never gets to go back. No, poor bloke. Wales, it's, he conquers Wales, he but does. he never does so with a big fatal blow. There are no big battles in which you know he storms the place. And Doesn't need it, Graham. He just sort of gets the job done. He had an overwhelming advantage in resources. Yeah. It was kind of, really was cracking a walnut with a grenade. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, unnecessary yeah. expense. And flamboyant. The castles were much bigger and um, costlier than they needed to be. Mm. Some were never finished, like yeah. Damaris, as you say. Consequently, in Scotland, he doesn't have the money he needs, where he maybe could have done with some of those castles. Yeah. Uh, Edward's contemptuous treatment of the Scots when he was the arbiter of power helped to unite a very divided country and give a sense of national identity against England. Yeah. And, you know, he failed to conquer Scotland. He didn't do it. Died a bit early. And it was small fry, a lot of stuff, really. He doesn't manage crusades. And France... He doesn't do a good job either. He goes over, struggled to get Gascony, actually failed in his campaign. He only retained Gascony through marrying. Clever. Nice. Clever, but battly. Yeah. <laughs> He's concentrating on the Welsh. He's got some <laughs> wonderful castles to build. I tell you what, they are dangerous, these Welsh. You don't understand how dangerous they are. <laughs> Elizabeth I. Do we have to do any more? Because it sounds like he's won. I mean, well, I mean, probably just for the, for the sake of... Okay, you know, right. She has some military success. Obviously, she's not actually fighting herself. Yeah. But... She's a lady. 1216, Scotland, a successful intervention, defeated these French Catholic forces, helped establish a more amenable Protestant regime. Mm. Ireland, the Nine Years' War, and uh, 1594, Hugh O'Neill rebelled with a large army and Spanish links, but Siege of Kinsale was broken, where 4,000 Spanish troops landed. Where? In Ireland? Kinsale, Yeah. And uh, Mountjoy uh, rushed to besiege the fort, and in 1602, a cavalry victory routed the Irish and the Spanish, and Ireland in 1603 was effectively conquered. Done. 
Well, I can't imagine that throws up any problems. (laughs) Exactly. The Spanish Armada, of course, is the most famous. Mm, A fleet of 150 ships and 15,000 men who are going to link up with an invasion force of 30,000 in Flanders. Mm. But they are ruffled by bad weather, harrying by Sir Francis Drake, and then some English fire ships are sent in at Calais. They, in the end, have to decide to come home, but they're shipwrecked by terrible weather. Only 67 of the ships actually get home. And Elizabeth, of course, at, uh, visits Tilbury Fort, where troops yeah. are ready in case of invasion, and delivered the speech where she said, I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too. I mean, that's, an, that's a Rex factor speech. We haven't had many speeches, no, but that so is... Yeah. As Pope Sixtus V acknowledged, she is only a woman, only mistress of half an island, and yet she makes herself feared by Spain, by France, by the Empire, by all. Half an island? Well, she doesn't have Scotland... Well, he needs to do his maths. That's <laughs> more than half. Against her, yeah. she does have a reputation of being quite indecisive, always putting off decisions. Her minister, William Settle, threatened to resign until she agreed to invade Scotland in 1560. <laughs> Can you imagine that today? <laughs> I threatened to resign unless you take the <laughs> decision. Uh, in 1562, there was an attempt to recapture Calais, which had been lost under uh, Queen Mary, but completely fails, never get anywhere near it. And we never get it back. And we never get it back. They suffer a number of defeats uh, to Ireland. So Anil has a victory at uh, Clontrebe in 1595, Yellow Ford in 1598. And the Earl of Essex went over with 17,000 troops in 1599, but poor organisation, thousands diseased, and he made a peace treaty. That's an epic force, 17,000 mm. people. I couldn't manage it. Yeah. And uh, Spanish Armada, England were lucky. Oh, yes. The Armada, without the bad weather and some poor tactics by the Spanish, to be fair, mm. could have made it and probably, if that had happened, would have been it for Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah. As Philip said, uh, I sent the Armada against men, not God's winds and waves. Quite, I mean, he's got a point. But saddle grapes. Yeah, but saddle grapes, exactly. <laughs> William III, yes. despite being later, yeah. is still a very much a military man. 1672, when he was uh, just the stadtholder in Holland, mm. or in the Netherlands, only 20 years old, no military experience, and had an army of 25,000 against Louis's 120,000 and Charles's naval assault. He refused peace terms, defeated the navy, reigns in 1674, basically make Holland impossible. Mm. So he doesn't defeat Louis, but Louis has to say, all right, you That's win for now. That is effectively a victory against those He was urged by a Duke of Buckingham to accept that the country was lost and just give in, to which he responded, It is indeed in great danger, but there is a sure way never to see it lost, and that is to die in the last ditch. That's, yeah, that's the words of a battliness Rex Factor winner. Then, uh, 1688, we have the Glorious Revolution. A huge invasion force, 40,000 men, 463 ships. So it's much bigger than the Spanish Armada. Yeah. Uh, pays his army three months in advance, so he's ready in case it proves to be a long haul. Right. But as it is, a few small skirmishes, James flees, and he wins. Well done. Did yeah. he get his money back for those three months, do you think? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, in Ireland, he defeats James at the Battle of the Boyne, despite some very heavy casualties crossing mm. uh, the river. Naval supremacy is established. Um, at La Hogue, the French fleet was pursued and then pretty much destroyed, so England's got control. Yeah, I think it's assumed that that's post-Armada, but it's definitely this period, mm, because oh, it's yeah. the Dutch before that were giving us lots of grief, and here he is. Nine years' war, William forms a grand alliance with the Netherlands, Spain, the Holy Roman Emperor, and fights Louis to a standstill. Yeah. And Louis does acknowledge William as King of England at that point. 
He's fought his way to equality and actually getting the respect to the most powerful man in Europe. Yeah. Invasion-leading, Louis-bashing, Rex Factor penguin. I mean... Limitations for him. Well, in 1688, yeah. uh, he never actually has to fight a big battle and he was invited to invade, <laughs> which does yeah. limit the battliness impression of it. Like the Spanish Armada, he also benefited from a Protestant wind where James's Sorry. ships were hemmed in. and couldn't stop the invasion fleet coming over. As Voltaire uh, noted, he left behind him the reputation of a general to be feared, though he had lost many battles. So he doesn't actually ever really have any great victories against Louis XIV. He's Mm. never really, apart from Battle of the Boyne maybe, never has great wins. He's more of a diplomat than a great general, in a way. He builds the alliances. He invents PR, which, you know... Well, another one. He definitely doesn't do that. <laughs> Louis XIV was still dominant. It's Marlborough under Queen Anne who actually defeats him. But he does what Canute couldn't do. He stems the tide of this relentless Louis advance. But in battleliness terms, we've got a pretty good group there, actually. Oh, yes, we really do. No real failures. Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, straight away, yeah. I'm viewing Canute as mm. a conqueror. Yeah. Which I hadn't really given him credit for. In the Conquers past. England. Yeah. and Not many manage that. No, and he's not really up there with William the Conqueror. If you said, mm. say Canute, people would say Tide. Yeah. They wouldn't think Conquers all of England. Yeah. I suppose, I mean, in a way, William's not that he's in this group, but he's almost the conqueror because of consolidating it afterwards. And that. In fact, yeah. Canute does that, but he doesn't do it in quite as brutal a way as William, perhaps. Yeah. And if you compare Canute, and technically William the Third in a way, conquers England. Yeah, definitely. But he's invited, and he doesn't have to fight a battle, whereas Canute has 14 months of really hard campaigning and defeats Edmund Ironside. But, uh, but William, to be even in the position of being considered, mm. has fought so hard to go from from such a poor position against such an epic foe. Mm. And he doesn't, in England, he doesn't really have to fight at all. James is Scarpers. James is rubbish. And Canute's got all this... It is good, it is very, very good. Though Canute and Henry II, they're both uh, a little overstretched with their empires. Yes. It's almost like goldfish, where you can't feed them too much food. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Henry II, yeah, castle's great. Um, I'm telling you I'm not liking this group. Hmm. That might be easier. Yeah. Richard of Lionheart. For battliness. Yeah. You know, because... He goes on... It's all on crusade. Yeah. And the bits that sort of mattered to his power Mm. were being lost. Well, but the thing is, that's only because he got imprisoned in Europe. Yeah. Actually, none of that was lost when he was on crusades. So if he hadn't been captured, he would have come home, everything exactly as it was. Everything exactly as it was, which is how he leaves it. Because and that's how he leaves it as well. So, I mean, eventually, after all this blood is spilt and all this money spent, it's the same. Mm. Unlike Henry II, he's very good at planning campaigns. Yeah. Very good at keeping his army out there. So yes, And you think Henry II is doing all this effort to keep his territories together. He's having to run and charge all around Europe. Mm. Richard, he just goes straight off on the Crusades yeah. and starts fighting these incredible battles over there. He captures Sicily and Cyprus on the hoof, yeah. defeats Saladin in battle, yeah. and the Empire's fine. Yeah, and just, he leaves it in a position of strength. 
He does. He Whereas does. Henry is sort of, you know, he's on the he's on the wane. Which, yeah, it is funny that um, Henry, having such a huge score, revisiting him is not quite so impressive. And certainly Elizabeth isn't isn't so impressive. She's not great for battliness. No. I mean, it, it's it's iconic the Armada. Yeah. Particularly for an island nation, but but she's had a bit of PR as well. Mm. But it hasn't been invented yet because William's not, not come around yet. <laughs> And of course, but, we haven't mentioned Edward the First. Well, Edward, I mean, I'm presuming that everyone knows that he's pretty good. Conquers Wales, yeah. amazing castles, really powerful. Oh, and powerful the, but it's the strategies as well. He sets up a proper army that isn't going to go home when harvests arrive. He pays them, and he's sort of. He, this is the first time you have a, an organised campaign like this, mm. rather than just thinking, right, it's that time of the year. Yeah. Who, who's with me? And boy, does it work. But. Okay, he conquers Wales, but Scotland doesn't go quite as well. Scotland doesn't go quite as well. And actually, funnily, without actually doing very much, Henry II probably got more success in Scotland. Yeah, that was that was jolly lucky. I reckon in battle, Richard and Edward would be a an epic encounter, an epic campaign. Oh, oh good grief! Imagine those. Yeah, but I think against Henry II, even Canute, Elizabeth, William III, I think Richard is just. He's so powerful, he's so dominant. And that, as I say, that reputation that Saladin recognises him as this mm. incredible adversary. He's famed in France, he's famed in the Middle East. He's got, he's got a lot going there. But uh, that image of him on the ship. Yes, that is plane, amazing. That's yeah. such a wreck. That's exactly what we're moment. going for, isn't it? If it were to be a Royal Rumble, yeah. I think it would be, as you say, Richard and Edward, mm. right at the end knives at each other's throats and they they wouldn't stop them. no they just would, they would probably both get it um, but Canute underrated them I don't know I don't know how yes. he'd fit there mm. he's almost not quite tested enough is he and also the thing the thing with Canute is that he does kind of fill yeah, a I void see. like with the RSC he kind of fills a gap mm. and there are maybe well like William filling a gap yeah, just where there may be a stronger military leaders but that not at that time so there are some parallels there with that William. Yeah, yeah. That is interesting. They're both the conquerors sort of... Mm. Which is why we give the epithet to William, the yeah. conqueror. Uh, but I can imagine Richard and Edward, you know, like in um, films where, like, the baddie gets killed yeah. on his sword or something and he'll just pull through it and pull a face. I can <laughs> yeah. imagine them doing that to each other. <laughs> then, like, biting each other's nose yeah, or yeah. something. Yeah, definitely. Never give in. Definitely. And sitting on a pile of... of Henry Thousands and of use, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to a mm. different category. Okay. Scandal. My favourite. <laughs> Where it all counts. So Canute, he's, he's a little bit of a nasty streak to Canute. Really? Uh, 1014, when he was forced to leave England on Sven's death, he mutilates his hostages. Ooh. Cuts off their hands, ears and noses and Blinding. leaves them on the beach. Doesn't seem to blind oh, them. It's gone out of fashion. Edmund Einside very conveniently dies a few weeks after that agreement whereby the one of them that dies mm. second will inherit the yeah. entire kingdom. Um, Edmund Einside's sons were only babies when mm. Edmund died. Sent off into exile in Hungary, but it was rumoured that uh, Canute might have ordered that they should meet with an accident. Really? But they didn't. What? Oh, but mate, I think maybe somebody thought, I'm not sure I want to chuck some babies into the sea. How young are we? Oh, actual baby babies? Yeah. I mean, uh, that, I mean, it's regular for them to meet with an accident. Maybe that's what he meant. Well, well maybe <laughs> They've had a little accident. Perfectly <laughs> <laughs> Um Edwig, Ethelred the last son by his first marriage, right. went off into exile in 1017, came back, uh, but then was executed on Canute's orders. Quite right. May have been trying yeah. to start an uprising, but mm. still... 
Uh, lots of other nobles were killed in that first year that Canute's king. You're pretty much anyone who sees his trouble yeah. gets rid of them. And he's a bigamist. Okay. Uh, during Sven's conquest, he marries Elgafu of Northampton, but then in 1017, he married Emma of Normandy. Oh, yeah. With bigamy, murder, mutilation. Yeah, I mean, it's got some boxes ticked. Isn't yeah. It? I can I can see the sun headline. What's it? Meet the head, shoulders, knees, and toes. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Probably one of the all-time uh, historical oh, scandal headlines yes. is Henry II. Mm. Um, he did a few other things as well as the biggie that we'll get to. Um, something like eleven illegitimate children. Yeah, which isn't too bad. Ma- marrying Eleanor of Aquitaine is not without its. Uh, Oh, yeah, from the French king. Well, yeah, so she was Louis VII's wife, mm. divorced him because he was just really dull and rubbish, mm. and then married Henry, ten years her junior, about eight weeks later yeah. after divorcing the French king, which doesn't go down well with the king of France. No, surely. And after inciting her sons to rebel, Henry has her imprisoned for the rest of the reign. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty spiky as well. Let's start at Christmas. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, so, Thomas Beckett had been exiled by Henry after they'd mm. had some conflict. It came to terms, but Henry doesn't greet him on his arrival, and then Becket excommunicates three of the people that had really upset him. Mm. Henry's furious when he hears about this and proclaims loudly, What miserable drones and traitors have I nurtured and promoted in my household who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born cleric? Yeah, and then they see that as a... Lord. Hearing this, four drunken knights go off to Canterbury and hack him to death at the altar of the cathedral. Right. Right. Scandalises Christendom. Henry's put under huge pressure. He fears excommunication. That's why he goes off to Ireland. Mm. Effectively lays low. Uh, 1174, when he actually does penance, 80 Canterbury monks all give him the rod. Mm. As in, like, hitting him. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's dressed in sackcloth or something. Yeah, Yeah, it's penance. So, a huge scandal at the time. The murder Mm. of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And that's one which really, really resonates as well. Yeah, Henry II alters Archbishop of Canterbury. Work, work on that. Well, one. Yeah, work on that. <laughs> I can't, I can't see how this is beaten. Sorry, that was me putting my pen down. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that's that long ago, still mm. every student of history knows of it. It's massive. Richard the Lionheart, mm-hmm. who was described by the historian Bishop Stubbs as a bad son, a bad husband, a selfish ruler, and a vicious man. God, that sounds great. Bad son. He yeah. rebels against Henry II on several occasions, ultimately leading to Henry's downfall and final defeat. Yeah. He hardly ever sees his wife, Bengaria, after they get married. She never comes to England, mm. despite being his queen. There were rumours that he had a homosexual relationship with Philip of Philip France. Philip of France, yeah. Mm. Um, he was said to have shared a bed with him yeah. on one occasion, and Henry was apparently left dumbfounded by their affection. And a hermit warned him to be mindful of the destruction of Sodom. That's, I'm surprised that hasn't been made more of in... In the mm. past. Was uh, it, well, is that because it's possibly not true? Or? Quite well, indeed. Only really suggested by modern historians, the homosexuality. Mm. So, you know, he was actually also notorious for his lustful treatment of women. The sharing a bed thing might have been some kind of sort of diplomatic metaphor or that's, ceremony. That's good. That's for king and country there, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. That wasn't in my job description. He was a vicious man. Reputation for brutal rule in Aquitaine. In Acre, uh, he had lots of prisoners, 2,700 prisoners, but feared that they might slow his campaign down. Mm. So he very systematically has them all beheaded. <laughs> That's, I'm not, again, I'm not laughing <laughs> at mass murder slash genocide. Um, it's just, he's so, so Richard, isn't it? Yeah. If it were a good, That's Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Before his coronation banquet, he ordered that no women or Jews should be present. They, they're all a bit anti-Semitic, aren't they? Uh, when some came anyway with the gifts... 
despite <laughs> women or Jews, uh, Jews, right. uh, they were set upon and attacked. Oh dear! And then atrocities spread across the country. There was a mass suicide of four hundred at York, barricaded into a town. Oh people yeah, trying to break into it because they were being nice. That's outrageous. In his defence, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Penny heard a noise during the banquet, but the doorman told him it was nothing. And when he found out what had happened, he had the doorkeeper executed. Um, he, can't, he can't get enough. Right. And he did order that there be no more mistreatment of the Jews in his absence. Oh, OK. But that didn't really happen. No, I mean, it's not going to bring him back, but... Edward I. Tell me. A bit of a slippery so-and-so. Mm. Can't be trusted. Initially, he actually sided with Simon de Montfort. Yeah. Against his because father. Yeah. Changed sides. Yeah. At the Battle of Evesham, he approached in Simon de Montfort's colours... Mm. to make the people there think that allies were coming along, which is yeah. very bad for him. <laughs> yeah. uh, at Gloucester, apparently, he sought a truce when the rebel army was approaching with superior numbers, and as soon as they left, he just broke all of the terms. Yeah. The classic medieval king. He had an appalling temper. Yes, classic word, Plantagenet. Tore out some of his son's hair when he tried to promote his favourite, Piers Gaveston. Uh, he chased his hunting companion across a river with a sword drawn when the hunting companion lost control of Edward's falcon. <laughs> and he scared an elderly dean to death when he grew angry in his presence. Wow. That's anger, isn't it? That is anger. He was also a reputation for brutality, mm. Edward. Enlisted a hit squad to take de Montfort out at Evesham, <laughs> who was then uh, brutally mutilated. Mm. Welsh rebels and William Wallace are hung, drawn and quartered, mm. and their bits distributed Brilliant. across the country. And he ends centuries of chivalric tradition whereby nobles don't get killed. Mm. Yeah. He's a real welder. Real <laughs> world, exactly. And uh, some maltreatment of women... As well, uh, Countess of Buchan and uh, or Buchan and Robert Bruce's sister were imprisoned in cages. What? Edward said that they got good treatment because he provided latrines. <laughs> that is um, that is some proper scandal, isn't it? He puts he caged them. Let me yes. say, he cages them. Yeah, and then lets them out. Or they Eventually, they were let out. They weren't murdered, but right. Yeah. Good. Incredibly, the only thing against Edward is that he was thought to have been entirely faithful to his wife. Or his wives, he had two in the end, wouldn't he? No, when she died. He was very upset, though. Very upset. So, actually, in terms of sort of juicy uh, tabloid fodder, he doesn't actually do that. He's missing a big bit of the pie chart. He doesn't do that. He's just an incredibly brutal, Mm. angry man. Elizabeth I. Yeah. Um, When living with Catherine Parr after the death of Henry VIII... Um, Catherine Parr married Thomas Seymour. Seymour? Why, why have we heard that in uh, Jane Seymour's brother. One of Jane Seymour's brothers. God, that's complicated for a little bit. <laughs> very complicated, yes. Uh, Catherine Parr, whilst pregnant, caught them dallying in bed. <laughs> and uh, she was sent off that's to That's even more complicated. Yes. So that's her stepmother's husband, her, her, her executed, her executed step-uncle... Yeah, so he gets executed after this when, when Catherine Parr dies, he then tries to get married to Elizabeth that, and gets executed. It's, it's, it's too much. <laughs> Robert Dudley. Mm-hmm. Contemporaries didn't really understand the appeal of this sort of tall, dark, handsome rogue <laughs> with mischievous eyes and uh, <laughs> ability to make Elizabeth laugh. But ambassadors reported that he visited her chambers at night. Right. And there were rumours of a secret child... Uh-huh. between them. Uh, Amy Robsart was Dudley's actual wife, mm-hmm. who was kept away from court. Killed? Well, she was found one day at the bottom of a small staircase with her neck broken. Oh, it's a little accident. A little accident mm-hmm. indeed, very suspicious. And of course Mary Queen of Scots, her cousin, yeah. a fellow monarch, and she is executed. 
Yeah, I mean, the Tudors have got it going on when it comes to scandal, haven't they? Mm. In Elizabeth's defence, mm. with Thomas Seymour, I mean, in modern eyes, she's only a teenager at this point, we'd probably recognise that as child abuse. Yeah. Scandalous, yeah. but is yeah. it her fault? Mm. Uh, with Dudley, she always vehemently denied any impropriety. She was, of course, the Virgin Queen. Mm. Not inventing propaganda. <laughs> Amy Robsart, the coroner's report said the injuries were compatible with a fall. And we now know that... Of course that, he did. Well, we now know that you know, she had breast cancer. We now know that actually she may have had a brittle spine as a side effect of this. It made the person's job who pushed her easier. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe. And to be fair with Mary Queen of Scots, people, her councillors were calling for her to be executed pretty much from 1568. So it was only 1587 with a Babington plot, mm. largely engineered by Francis Walsingham. To give her an excuse. That yeah. Elizabeth finally caved okay. in. And finally, William III. Yay. He was said to have had a mistress, Elizabeth Villiers. Oh, right. So Mary waits outside Elizabeth's rooms until two o'clock when William emerges. Caught and, red-handed. And he is furious. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Convinces her that it wasn't how it looked. It didn't mean anything to him. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she begs for forgiveness. Mary begs William for forgiveness for daring to impugn his honour when he emerges at two o'clock in the morning right. from another woman's bedroom. Getting a lesson in darning or something. And William sends all the servants packing that told her all about it. Mm. He also had a reputation for close male associates. Right. And uh, one, uh, Portland, wrote to him in 1697 expressing concern that people would believe his kindness towards uh, a man Keppel would make them believe that they were lovers. And he dismissed this? or did he? It seems to me very extraordinary that it should be impossible to have esteem and regard for a young man without it being criminal. No. I mean, there's not much, is there? He doesn't like frivolities oh, and yes. fun. His first visit to England in 1670 he was appalled at the licentious nature of Charles II's court. Yeah, it's weird that I really like them both, and they're so different. Mm. Although apparently Buckingham did get him drunk and he tried to break into the rooms of the maids of honor. <laughs> yeah! He probably had his drink spiked or something and really he woke up like in the morning going, whoa! <laughs> I will never drink again. <laughs> yeah. So I think William III falls a long way short yeah, of scandal. He does, He's he? not a fun monarch no. and he doesn't like that sort of stuff. <laughs> oh, funny. I mean, come on. Henry II. Beckett. Beckett. Edward I, just rage. Um, Richard I, it's all good stuff. 2,000 killed systematically, <laughs> guys. When Elizabeth's got some proper... Elizabeth's the only one that's actually got the sort of sex scandals. Yeah. To a name. And Rob Sart, a very suspicious yeah. bottom-of-the-stairs job. Yeah. So she's got the... She's uh, got a bit of death there as well. and a suspicious death. Yeah, yeah. Can you... Richard and Edward, they're just really very, very brutal men. <laughs> they are. And I think we marked Canute down, because we didn't have him... We mm. didn't before. I don't think we marked him on chopping off their knees. Um, so, Elizabeth for your bedroom antics. Mm. Henry II for the proper headline. Yeah. Stopper. It yeah. is, and Elizabeth with 5.5 is low. <laughs> what were we thinking? What were we thinking? But, come on, Richard and Edward and Canute, although just vicious. Yes. <sighs> That's vicious. There's vicious and there's just, like, they're mob gangsters, really. You can't leave them in a room with people. Or no, no, no. Everyone no. will be dead. Yeah, it's, they're like spiders. There's just one big juicy spider at the end. Yeah. And they would be that <laughs> juicy spider. They would. Um... I mean, wouldn't you get bored after your thousandth beheading? Hmm. Yes, and you're only halfway at a thousand. Yeah. <sighs> Subjectivity. So, Canute. Yeah. 
he's quite pro-Saxon as a conqueror goes, if we yeah. compare to William the Conqueror and his harrying in the north and that mm. sort of thing. Canute seeks election by the, the Wheatan, the Saxon Parliament, marries Ethelred II's wife, Emma of Normandy, so he's got that sort of Bringing them in, yeah. Many Saxons are a major part of the government, mm-hmm. particularly Wolfstan of York. He lays peacock feathers on the grave of Edmund Ironside, serving to help him ascend to heaven. And uh, moves the bones of St. Elphir, who was an Archbishop of Canterbury who had been murdered by the Vikings under uh, Sven Forkbeard, and he sent it to Canterbury, Ah. which is quite nice. That's quite nice. And a thing. I love this. I've I've, I've been using this a lot. We should bring the thing back. Thing back. Essentially, it's kind of like a peace conference, in a way. And that's where he says he's going to uphold Edgar's laws and Mm. be just and protect the church and all this Mm. kind of thing. So he's very much trying to model himself as a perfect Saxon king. Mm. He ends 30 years of raids. Oh, yeah. Because of the fact that he is a Viking, so the Vikings are no longer raiding. But he also tackles uh, some pirates. 1018, 30 ships get sunk by Canute. Strengthens the currency. Uh, excellent relations uh, with Wolfstan and the church, so he repairs churches that were plundered by the Vikings under Sven, mm. uh, also builds some new ones and bestows others with ecumenical gifts, and he becomes an international statesman. The Vikings really seen as pagan barbarians mm. by most, even though he is Christian, he's still yeah, a Viking. Yeah. The biggie for him in 1027, he accepts an invitation to witness the accession of the Holy Roman Emperor. Right, so he's right up there. He's so he actually walks alongside him at the uh, procession in Rome. Walks alongside him? Mm. Wow. And his daughter marries the emperor's son and successor. That's pretty... Now, the tide. Mm. The yeah. Canute's most famous thing, he's mocked for thinking he was so powerful that he could command the tide only to get very soggy feet. Yeah. Really, the story is meant to be that he was demonstrating his humility before God. Right. Because he's showing that even kings are below God and cannot control nature. It's really unfortunate. It's a shame, isn't it? And it shows how powerful he was that he was challenged. Mm. And in the end, he's just remembered to the soggy feet. Yeah. Hmm, shame. Against Canute, £72,000 Danegeld had to be paid immediately after the conquest of England. To who? He is the... Well, he wanted to pay off his army. Oh, OK. And then £10,500 uh, for London's peaceful submission. Mm. He retains 40 ships throughout the reign, which probably cost about £14,000 a year to maintain, mm. as well as the North Sea Empire going as on. Yeah. So probably really heavy taxation there must have been to make this all possible. And indeed, defaulters would lose their lands, churches melt down presses' objects and mortgage their lands to pay off the taxes. Right. And there's a bit of a hagiography going with Canute, kind of like Asa with... Alpha the Great, but perhaps more so, because Wolfstan and the church are on board. Wolfstan? Yeah. Who's Archbishop that? Archbishop of York. Oh, church what figure. a name. It is a good name. Oh, I expect my first child to be called that. <laughs> Wolfstan Hood. Yeah. Or Wolfstan the Hood. Yes, better. Yeah. I think the should be the middle name of all of my yes. children. Um, Wolfstan writes his legal text in which he sets out all of the great rule and good and pious things that will be done by Canute. It's probably more a statement of what should happen than necessarily what did. Okay, interesting. Setting a precedent. Emma has a biography written which praises Canute for being pious and a good ruler. But that's probably not the the king that his subjects would actually have remembered. No, you're not going to... It's like commissioning a painting, you're not going to 
draw on the spots. Probably, actually, we're seeing that the church overlooks the bigamy and the murders and the taxes because mm. he shows willing in terms of supporting the church and the things it cares about. Yes, yeah, and he hides all the noses and knees in the cupboard. And he's very, very political and canny, Canute. His ostentatious displays of humility, bit of an oxymoron mm. there, um, the Times is a very ostentatious way of showing how humble you are. <laughs> yeah. By sort of standing in the sea and saying, yeah. Everybody behold me! I am humble Canute! <laughs> um, the Peacocks for Ironside, Edmund Ironside as well, is quite is big gesture. So he's doing a lot of things like a tyrant might do to show what a good person yeah. they are. They're gestures. Yeah. It's not the day-to-day. He's telling everyone how many direct debits he has going out to the NSPCC. Yeah. Yeah. And the succession isn't all that successful for him because of the bigamy, and he's got children by both of the wives, who are both prominent. We see Emma and Elgafu and their sons, Harold and Harthacute, yeah. struggling for the throne. Yeah. So he kind of leaves it in a bit of a mess. Henry II. Law and order, he replaces corrupt sheriffs with trustworthy itinerant justices. Um, under Henry I, they just sort of did one area at a time, mm. every now and again. Under Henry II... Much more systematic. The country split up into circuits. Mm. Oh, that he travels around. So they tour the whole country every other year, and they do it all at the same time. Mm. So any court is subject to justices coming in and making sure it's all above board. In 1166, we have the Assize of Clarendon, which is a huge development towards English common law. Establishes the principle of trial by a jury. Mm. So 12 lawful men had to report under oath any accusations of crimes that they're aware of. Mm. It's not exactly the trial by jury that we know today, but it's this principle that begins. Yeah, and you can see um, bits of the modern jury there with 12 mm. people. And all. So that's a major development yeah. in the English legal system under Henry, and he takes a strong personal interest in matters of law and justice, said to have lain awake at nights working through judicial language, mm. sits in at various hearings as well, debates matters with his scholars at court, so he's really involved. Yeah. And he's a very generous king. 1176, there was a famine in Maine and Anjou, so Henry has sent grain to feed 10,000 people. That's nice. Try and help out. Employed a Templar knight to distribute one-tenth of all the royal court's food to the poor. Mm. And he sought to protect uh, protect victims of shipwrecks, Um, so penalties are imposed for anyone who robs them, which was very commonplace. And he personally goes to great expense to reimburse losses suffered by some of his fleets in shipping accidents. Oh, right. Well, that's so, good. like Alfred, he probably mm. is a king that you can actually say is trying to improve the lives of his subjects. Yeah, definitely. Well, that, I mean, just the, the court's business is pretty, yeah. pretty good. And that's a huge legacy. Mm. Yeah, massive. Against him, there is, of course, the Thomas Becket affair. Yeah. And the crisis could have cost him the throne. Yeah, yeah, sure. And he does kind of provoke it. We think back to Henry I and his conflict with Anselm. Mm. Henry I compromises in order to get a better run, stable country. Yeah. Henry II, Kills he doesn't stabilise things. He yeah. doesn't compromise. No. He's sort of got, a, like all these kings, a little bit of a tyrannical uh, sort of mindset. Mm, There's a great writ that he sent to Winchester where he said, I order you to hold a free election. But nevertheless, I forbid you to elect anyone except Richard, my clerk, the Archdeacon of Poitiers. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. He's a man who has to get his way. There's no compromise with Henry II. Yeah. Like all Plantagenets, he's got a temper on him. Yes, he has. Uh, apparently there was a misplaced word of praise for the King of Scotland one morning, which saw Henry fall out of bed, screaming, tearing up his coverlet, thrashing on the floor, and then stuffing the mattress into his mouth. 
I'm shocked. When the Plantagenets lose their cool. By golly, they, yeah. A volcano erupts. That's stages of rage. Yes. <laughs> getting out of bed, falling out of bed for a start. Getting someone who fall out of bed and not laughing at yourself or feeling like a ninny. Ripping it up and then shoving it in his mouth. And if you think then to the murder of Beckett and Henry's angry words, you can imagine how angry he was when he said those words, and you probably would have thought that he wanted to kill somebody. Yeah, yeah. You can easily imagine him saying it. Mm. Um, also, we criticised Richard the Lion, and we will shortly mm. criticise Richard the Lionheart for not being here mm. very often. Henry um, only speaks French and Latin, though he can understand English and all languages. Spends 37% of his time in Britain, 43% of his time in Normandy, and 20% elsewhere in France. So the majority of the time he isn't here. Yeah. In his defence, of course, that is the Anglo-centric view. England is one part of his many territories. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. It's just... I I always presume that they feel like they should spend most time in England Mm. because they're kings there. But I suppose, you know, why not? He's Mm. from Montreux. The other funny thing with Henry is he's actually not very popular at all at the time. What? Not at all mourned when he dies. William Newbert noted that in his own time he was hated almost by everyone. I thought it was because he was successful and powerful and... Well, it's one of those, it's kind of with hindsight that they realise actually yeah. what a good and successful king he was. But at the time, he's seen as, quite, he's seen as very harsh, very imposing, yeah. a bit tyrannical. Okay. You know. Mm. Even with his, all his laws and that? Yeah. Well, it, these are things which at the time one probably doesn't really appreciate quite what an important yeah. innovation that was. Richard the Lionheart. Um, in his defence, things that were good about him... Yeah. Um, he's accustomed to ruling in Aquitaine, which was very decentralised. Mm. So for him, it's quite normal to be wherever yeah. you are and just yeah. ticking things off as they get brought to you. And as we said, but for his imprisonment, um, he would have come back from the Crusades without any loss of territory, any really serious rebellion at home. Yeah, but he did. Um, he'd made deals with um, King of Scotland and Welsh rulers mm. um, that were very good to them. So when John tries to get them to support him, they won't. Because he's already done the prep. Because he's already mm. done the work beforehand. So he does actually get mm. that secure. So he's left England in a very strong position. He's also a surprisingly cultured man for really? such a brutal medieval right. warrior. He brought up at Eleanor's court in Poitiers, which is famous for its chivalry and its poetry and all this sort of thing. And Richard, very much educated in that vein. Mm. And he is a troubadour, <laughs> a sort of singing poet. Do we have any record of his... Of his talents? Uh, well, he, I mean, he composes lyrical poetry. He does actually compose a poem whilst he's imprisoned. Well, he's got not much else going on. He doesn't, but this, it's not what you imagine. No, that's Richard true. Lionheart, but he does it. Is it all about his heroics? I bet it is. I think it was a bit of a moan about being abandoned and... Being in prison. Nobody loves me. Mm. He has a bit of a sense of humour as well. Yeah. As you can imagine, a bit of a dark sense of humour. <laughs> so uh, when he captures Cyprus... Yeah. Uh, the ruler was worried that he was going to be treated badly or indignantly, so he promises him that he won't put him in chains. Yeah, it's nothing to lose your head about. Oh, so he doesn't put him in chains. He puts him in shackles made of silver. <laughs> nice. He only spends six months out of his ten years rule in England. In England, mm. which isn't very much at yeah, all. Yeah, very low. He's pretty much an absent ruler. It's uncertain if he actually spoke English, and he complained that England was cold and always raining. Well, that's true. Uh, to fund the Crusades, he puts up pretty much all of the offices of state go up for sale. Mm. So if you want to be Chancellor or whatever, you have to buy the office back. Sold off royal lands, 
And indeed, he joked, I would sell London if I could find a buyer. That's the one. That's the one. Um, the ransom to free him from his imprisonment was £100,000, which at that time is epic. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a lot now, is it? They had to set up a special department just to organise it. Three years' worth of Crown revenues. Three years' worth of all the income? And a, a quarter incomes for the clergy and the nobles. 35 tonnes of silver. Gosh! 35 tonnes of silver? Oh, <laughs> that's... Uh, I, can't, I was just trying to visualise 35 tonnes. <laughs> Gosh! Right, well, bad, bad boy. And uh, as Bishop Stubbs said of him, his ambition was that of a mere warrior. He would fight for anything whatever, but he would sell anything that was worth fighting for. Yeah, 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 I can see that. So he's not really thinking long term, is he? Yeah. He doesn't really care about his subjects in England. No. He wants Jerusalem or yeah. whatever. And he's incredibly arrogant mm. as well. So when he was initially captured by Leopold of Austria, um, he was captured because at uh, Acre, Leopold's flag had gone up alongside Richard and Philip's. And Richard said, that shouldn't be up there. He's nothing. Tear it down. Trample on it. So that's why Leopold had a bit of a bee in his bonnet. And then Richard is captured because he was incapable, unlike Charles II, of adopting a good disguise. <laughs> so he yes. sends a boy off with a really elaborate Byzantine coin to buy some food. And then when people come along and inspect them, they're in disguise, but he's got the Angevin gloves with gold and lions <laughs> on and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Edward I... Yes. Some big developments here. We think of him, for some reason, as just all about castles mm. and waving his sword, but the proper good ruling stuff. At the start of the reign, uh, the country only had an income of about £25,000 a year, but Edward reclaims royal lands, raises money in custom duties, and gets loans from the Riccardi bankers of Lucca so yeah. they can actually maintain and support all of his campaigns. Which I can't imagine he pays back. We'll see if that becomes an issue. He was noted as the English Justinian. Yeah. Wide-ranging legislation to tackle various problems in a much more sophisticated, permanent fashion. So lots of actual statutes and legislation. Yeah. Some of which are still in place today. Uh, law and order. He set up a grand national inquiry to hear complaints of corruption by royal officers, who mm. could then be removed. Uh, revived the itinerant justices and restores royal authority in courts with a thing called quo ruanto. So nobles had to prove that they got a right to hold a court of law. Yeah. Otherwise it reverts back to the king. Quite right. And uh, Parliament, major development under Edward's rule, 1295 model Parliament had representatives not just from the lords and clergy, but two knights, two burgesses and two citizens elected from each county. That's brilliant. And it's known as the model Parliament because it is in effect a model for what comes afterwards. Yeah. And it's in this reign we really get it established that to get taxation of the country, it's got to be... Represented. ...go through yeah. Parliament. Wow, that's huge. But, mm. as you said, uh, he doesn't actually manage to pay back the Riccardi loans. And in fact, in the 1290s, they stopped paying them mm. because he does, in fact, die heavily in debt. There's not very much money in circulation in this period, only about £1 million. The Jews tax so heavily they couldn't pay up. Mm. Which is why... Uh, he kicks them out. Yeah. Uh, the first Welsh campaign cost something like £25,000. And then there are all of those excessive castles. Yes. 1294 to 98, he's fighting on war on three fronts. So you've got Wales, Scotland and France. Which cost apparently something in the region of £750,000. <laughs> That's huge. When you think it was 25000 at the start of his reign. Yeah. And uh, the Quo Ruanto causes uh, lots of... 
uh, anger amongst the nobility. Earl Warren apparently drew his sword, which had been used by an ancestor at Hastings, and shouted, This is my warrant! And, and imagine that Edward was pretty calm about that. Oh, OK. okay yeah, yeah, yeah. Carry on. This is my warrant! <laughs> So you actually had to give up on the quo wanto. You had to oh, right. you put it aside because it was too much opposition yeah. from it. 1297, he has a constitutional crisis. The pressure of all of those wars, all of the heavy taxation, and the nobles actually refuse to go and fight in Flanders. Mm. So they say it's a bad idea. And they draw up remonstrances complaining that he's failing to uphold Magna Carta. Yeah. So it's almost getting almost, to the stage yeah. where you're worried about civil war. Mm. And it's only really the defeat at Stirling Bridge against William Wallace which gives a common enemy and brings yeah. them all back together again. So Edward reconfirms Magna Carta, abolishes extra duty on wool, and agrees no more tax without uh, consultation. Yeah. Which is good, but it is because he's had to concede ground. I see what you mean. Yes, that's true. And, of course, most notoriously, the expulsion of the Jews. Yes. Ongoing royal moneylenders, but once he'd got a better alternative and they'd run out of money, he agreed to expel them. So all the Jews are forced out of the country. Elizabeth I. We have the Elizabethan age. It's an incredible period for England. Despite Puritan opposition, she forms a theatre company. Yeah. And of course we have Shakespeare, we have Marlowe. In music, we've got uh, Bird and Downard and Tallis, poets like Spencer in Sydney. Elizabeth loves choral music and really supports that. Puritans hate it, would have gotten rid of it, but it's Elizabeth that actually keeps it going. Uh, exploration really kicks off Yes. In this period. 1565, Hawkins returned from America with sweet potato and tobacco and a few slaves. 57 to 1580, Drake circumnavigates the globe and the golden yeah, hind. Huge. Her motto was Semper Iardum, which means always the same. So after this turbulent half century of Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary I, all these religious wars and upheaval, yeah. she stabilises things. Much more steady rule. Yeah, which was what needed, yeah. Uh, her councillors, unlike Henry VIII, who just executes everyone any time <laughs> he goes off them for a bit, she's very loyal to her men until the later years, avoids having a factional court. She chooses good men and she doesn't literally chop and change. <laughs> yeah, quite right. Yeah. And she's actually quite merciful. She's always reluctant to execute her rivals, uh, which is quite unusual for a Tudor. Yes. Mary, Queen of Scots, it took her years before she acceded. But she did do it, didn't she? She did cut the co her cousin's head off. The religious settlement, uh, radical cause for Protestant Reformation, while Catholic bishops completely oppose it. Very tricky situation, but Elizabeth, much more moderate in her outlook, she vows not to open windows into men's souls. What does she mean? She means she can just show outward conformity, go to Sunday service with the Church of England, but otherwise you don't have to be radically Protestant. And she's very, very popular. Highly adept at propaganda. It hasn't been invented yet. The Virgin Queen is very much a cultivated mm. thing where she says that she's married to the nation. Yeah. Portraits, these incredible portraits, really allegorical, always messages behind mm. them, still iconic. Yeah, yeah, really powerful. That one with a big sort of rough or, or yeah. a big thing behind her neck, that's amazing. And her golden speech in 1601 to Parliament, she says, There will never a queen sit in my seat with more zeal to my country. And though you have had and may have many princes more mighty and wise sitting in this state, yet you never had or shall have any that will be more careful and loving. Which reduces many to tears, because it's her last big speech. So she dies two years later. Just a couple of years later. Yeah. Well, He's the one. Of it, yeah. Yeah, looking after it. 
against her. Mm. There are actually a lot of Catholic reprisals, ultimately. Um, she arbitrarily decided 700 uh, would be executed after uh, a rebellion in the north. Just 700? Just the 700. Right. Uh, about 500 <laughs> were killed in all. But that was worse than Henry VIII and the Pilgrimage of Grace. Really? Mm. I'd have thought he'd gone mental. <laughs> Increasingly heavy fines for recusants, i.e. people that don't go to uh, Sunday Mass. Sunday service, rather. And about 183 Catholics executed in her reign. What's the punishment for not going on Sunday? Fine. Right. So, the executions, it's not at the same level as Mary, who did mm. a lot more in five years, but still, yeah. that's quite a lot. Yes, it certainly is. Of people. Admittedly, with the excommunication and all the plots going on... Still, it's, a, it's, it's a more than you. It's a delicate situation. It is more than yeah, you. Yeah. It is more than you. Um, in Ireland, uh, a garrison was massacred after the Desmond Rebellion, and Scorched Earth policy led to about 30,000 starving to death. Starting to be a problem. Uh, and governors got rather sterile in old age. It was good that she showed loyalty, but she just wouldn't replace them. Mm. So even when they got old and decrepit, she still had to have oh, them there they're her mates, working so. away. They are her mates. It's quite sad in a way. Uh, 1590s, Anglo-Spanish War led to very high taxation. Ireland, the Nine Years' War, poor harvest, epidemic disease, inflation. And as a bishop noted, the people were very generally weary of an old woman's government. Mm. So but they it? loved her and she gave that lovely speech. No? Yeah. Mm. And the succession. She's petitioned several times to marry, but never does. Mm. Refuses uh, to really give up that power, which means that she obviously doesn't produce an heir, yeah. and there are no more Tudors. Yeah. The next in line is a Catholic, Mary Queen of Scots, for no quite way. a long time, which is a bit awkward, and she refuses to name a successor. Well, there was something on her deathbed, though, wasn't there? No, even on her deathbed, she didn't actually name James as her successor. Well, didn't someone say, What about James? She went, No, maybe. Oh, I'll <laughs> take that as a yes, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, 5062, she nearly died from smallpox, and yeah. the council were completely at odds about who should be the successor. Yeah. So if she died, it could have been a civil Ooh, war, and it yeah. would have been her fault. Mm. Partly. Yeah. Finally, William III. Yay! Glorious revolution. Yeah. Largely bloodless, major constitutional legacy. So in 1689, the Bill of Rights it declares England's ancient rights and liberties, it's illegal to dispense with acts of parliament for the monarch, couldn't levy money without Parliament and illegal to have a standing army in peacetime without the consent That's good. of Parliament. Civil List Act in 1697, the House of Commons has statutory control over the monarch's finances, mm. so we can't have Charles II getting bribed Taxi. by Louis XIV yeah. and all these sorts of things. The Bank of England is established in 1694 to meet the demands of war with France. Yes, that really kicked, didn't it? So English interest rates plunge in this period, mm. while in France it actually really increases. Mm. So England is actually able to spend more than France is, despite yes. France being vastly uh, yeah, larger. Lovely, yeah. Legacy of this is that London effectively becomes the financial capital of the world, which is very important for the empire going on. We said at the time, I think in the episode, that it's as if he's, uh, he's understanding that the age of that sort of medieval total power monarch is over. An alternative interpretation... Yeah. is that actually he never really cares that much about England and English liberties, never understands the country. His prime concern, his only concern, is Louis XIV. Mm. So it's basically a case of, fine, you do whatever you want to do, yeah, all these laws, whatever, just as long as I've got my money and my men and I can go and fight Louis XIV, you can do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. So it's, he's not at the forefront of this. It's not like Henry II writing laws or anything like that. He's not a prime move in all of those things he just accepts it Parliament is now asserting itself mm. and William isn't bothered about future monarchs and their power he's just thinking about what he can do against Louis XIV no I'm still I'm still with him but 
now you frame it in the fact that he because I was thinking because he's doing all this great stuff at home yeah but he's not doing he's it he's not <laughs> 1692 we have the Glencoe Massacre Ooh. when uh, Highland chiefs required to take an oath of loyalty and a small McDonald clan was received with guests by the Campbells but uh, they oh, yeah. killed 38 get killed 40 women and children die of exposure after their homes burned technically William might have signed the order for this but this is really this is yeah probably though he just wasn't great with paperwork and he would just sign whatever was put in front of him the Darien scheme as well for Scotland trying to become a world trading nation with a colony quarter of their capital invested but poor planning supplies and disease meant it failed nobles and landowners ruined and William had refused to provide protection of the Royal Navy Mm. Um, in Ireland penal laws are passed against Catholics um, there's a dispossession of land exclusion from Parliament they're also excluded from Navigation Act so they don't get to share in the colonial trade and there's of course the sectarian legacy of the Orange Order mm. not intended by William at all no. but it is there and the cost of war again a common theme yeah. for these monarchs something like 75% of public expenditure was, was on fighting Louis XIV well, we've got these massive warriors though this is going to happen something like £5 million a year so it would be about £40 million for the reign God, these numbers are really shot up. It's tricky it? that we can't really compare these numbers because yeah. of inflation. <laughs> um, so many people saw, actually, we're just funding Dutch wars and we're not getting any benefit in England from this. This is his fight, it's not England's but they fight. they love a bit of France action, don't they? And he's not massively popular. As we said, he's not that fun, he doesn't enjoy ceremony and all that sort of thing. Found London a bit too damp and foggy for his asthma, so he goes to Hampton Court and he's a bit more out of the way. Just little penguin lungs. Uh, odds with politicians threatening to go home. <laughs> so there's one recording, 1692, where he wrote, This is a very fatiguing day for me. I opened Parliament this morning and have still to endure the celebrations of my birthday. Oh yeah, I remember that one. In his defence, I have missed out because of a printing error that he was very pro-toleration for Protestant yeah. dissenters. So he didn't mind the Jews doing their own thing, he didn't mind Quakers doing their own thing, so he does introduce actual legislation mm. to protect them. Yeah. So he's much more successful than Charles on that front. Right. Well, it's because we've listened to the Sinner stuff last, but this, the Saint stuff is great. I mean, he's got a huge score of 17 here. I think it is overall good. Mm. He might not have been so into it, yeah, but it happened. He did. I think there are some... Big winners here for me, mm-hmm. and I'll just highlight them for you now. Okay. We have Henry II yep. and Edward I. To me, <laughs> Inevitably. they're equal. Both on the laws things. They've got, you've got the <laughs> setting up of the juries by Henry II. Yes. All those laws codified by Edward I. Mm. So if they, if they balance each other. Both Henry II's one is much more of a thing of that he's personally invested in doing. Yeah. Edward I isn't writing these laws. He's passing them off and he's happy with them. He's the English Justinian. He's not going to bed thinking about this, um, the legal law wording that he's going to use, like Henry II was. He was thinking about his new sword that he's going to use. But he does have time to think of that as well. He does, and he does work with Parliament. He Mm. does allow these things to develop, which is a positive side to his rule. And given how temperamental he is and how steadfast he is, he does actually work quite positively with Parliament. And then we've got uh, Richard the Lionheart, who, to me... Falls a bit short here in subjectivity, doesn't he? He's just a Brit abroad. (laughs) First of all, he's going to these islands in the Mediterranean, going on a rampage... Club 18 to 30, basically. Yeah, gets there quickly, doesn't hang around, he gets the easy jet. Yeah. 
He goes mental while he's there. Yeah. And then comes back. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> he's at the, I think he's at the bottom for subjectivity. Knut's an interesting one. At the time, we gave him a lot of credit, but looking back at it again, I'm thinking maybe we were a little bit seduced by the winners by history thing. Yeah, history definitely. History written by the winners. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. And the, I, I think I was just surprised by the the conqueror side of him. Mm. The, the and dominance. the Saxoniness. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's a strong ruler, and he's, it's stable, and yeah. that's all good. Yeah. But yeah. he is a bit more brutal than perhaps we implied. Not harrying the North like William the Conqueror. Yeah. But there's shade as well as the light. That's true. And Elizabeth first, for me, all her subjectivity stuff is fun stuff, setting up the theatres and things. Shakespeare. Golden. Shakespeare, yeah. Uh, the travel, the travel, <laughs> the uh, the age of adventure is an exploration. Yes, hugely important. Stability, the religious settlement after all of yeah. Henry the Eighth. Yeah, going and that, and to to be a subject at the time, jolly important because you're you're going to the theatre, loving it, yeah, and you're having this stability and hearing stories of sea monsters from yeah. Walter Raleigh, love it, but you, it's perhaps not quite. Changing to society as these laws that were written down by Henry and Edward. Uh, Richard just going off yeah. um, on the first flight to Malaga. And William, William but no, maybe not so involved, but massive, massive strides towards a modern monarchy. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that's my thinking. Mm. Longevity. So, quickly, just to see how long mm. they ruled for. Canute, 1016 to 1035, 19 years. Mm. Henry II, 1154 to 1189, 34.75 years. Mm. Richard the Lionheart, 1189 to 99, 9.75 years. Mm. Edward I, 1272 to 1307, 34.67 years. That's huge. 0.08 less than Henry II. Elizabeth I is the top dog, though, 1558 to 1603, 44.33 years. All of our queens live ages, but man. And William III, 1689 to 1702, to 13.08 years. Mm. Dynasty! Not the programme. Canute had four, Henry II had four, and Edward I had seven. Oh, he wins this one as well. But for Richard the Lionheart, Elizabeth I and William III, no children at all. Yeah, very badly, not so childy. Hmm. Mm. Rex Factor! So, we've had all of the factors. When you put all of that together... Mm. How do we compare them for that really great achievement, that legacy that makes a big impact on English history and that star quality, that glitter that just stays with us and makes them stand out? Yeah. It's tough, isn't it? Because I I keep saying this. I say this on Facebook as well. It's so tough because they've all got their X Factor. Yeah. Canute's got this empire. He is known in Scandinavia as Canute the Great. Is he? We don't call him Canute the Great. Why? uh, I, I don't know, I guess we... He's too Viking king. Too Viking king. Mm. Henry II, this powerhouse with a huge range of territories, married to Eleanor of Aquitaine, the father of Richard the Lionheart. Mm. But he's this incredible force of energy, mm. rushing around, never stop, and proper stuff that has a legacy. The law, he's got that empire, Beckett for scandal. Yeah, no, he's got it all. He's got it going on. There's, yeah, there's no denying it. That man has the X Factor. Richard the Lionheart is one that I actually found myself surprisingly impressed by him going really? back over again. Said to have discovered Excalibur before the Crusades. We've got the Robin Hood, Blondel, his troubadour who is said to have found him by singing the song and then Richard answers with the oh, refrain. Yeah. 
Um, the Lion Heart, where he was a story about how he was going to be fed to a lion, but he rips its heart out and eats it. Is that where that comes from? That's where it comes from. <laughs> that was a contemporary legend. Right. The Lion Heart. Yeah. Lion Heart at the time. Obviously, all these things not necessarily true, but it shows he's a man that attracts legend. Yeah. He's a legend in his time in England, in France, and the Middle East. He's an yeah. incredible presence. Quite right. And I think, really, when, we were, when I was thinking about the Rex Factor for these really medieval kings, mm. he, in many ways, has that more, that more sort of rather black and white view of, Rex, of the Rex Factor than yeah. Henry II. Even though Henry II and Miles is much better. Mm. And that's where this, this grey area comes in. Um, but, yeah, no, he has it all. There's no denying it. I mean, look at him on the front of that ship. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's great. That's and at great. the time, that's exactly what a king was meant to do, go off on crusades. Yeah. That was what you should be doing. Yeah. So he would be sitting in the green room at the moment thinking, well, I've got, I've got this one in the back. Yeah. No one else has done this. Look at Edward I with his rubbish crusade. <laughs> but, dude, look at his castles. Um, Edward, though, is taller at six foot two, yeah. nicknamed Longshanks. Even in his old age, he never stoops, he never loses the ability to mount his horse easily. Yeah. Just all his life relentless yes he is and he just keeps on going you've got this sense of this really determined angry man mm. who just cannot be taken away from what he wants to do Wales, Scotland he's just going to do it yeah he gets a, he gets a scent and he follows that he's no, there's no letting go uh, Elizabeth I is perhaps one of the most iconic figures in English history um, she's got Henry's auburn hair Anne Boleyn's dark eyes and there's, it's almost this sense I got with like that golden speech about no one else will love you as much. It's almost like she's England's regal soulmate in yeah. terms of tapping into the hearts and minds. Yeah, she's there at the right time after all that nonsense. She's she's there. She's this figure that that sort of yeah embraces the country when it needs a bit of a cuddle mm. and needs a bit of stability. Although there's the panic over the Armada it's seen off, maybe it wasn't a bit yeah, of luck, but, but, you know... It all adds to the mystique. Yeah. And she's still got this hold over us as well. She does. does. still come through the centuries. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, she's certainly got that militaristic thing going yeah. on. Yeah, that great speech at Tilbury. Yeah. But, you know, she plays on the being a weak and feeble woman thing. She doesn't quite say, well, I may be a woman, but... Look at the Armada. I don't know, there's something a bit defeatist, maybe. A bit, she rolls over a bit because she's a woman. Well, but I have the heart and soul of a king and a king of England too. Yeah. It's quite defiant, really, rather than defeatist. No, no, that is, that's true. That's I true. think you missed the saying... central message. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean particularly that speech. I mean, like, the, the her last one in the Golden Age. The indecisiveness, the... Yeah, and the... she sort of attributes a lot of her things to being but a woman. And I know that's but remember, age. she's only the second woman ever to be queen. Yeah, Mary didn't have a great time of it, and Matilda, of course, didn't even get didn't to be queen at all. Yeah. And Elizabeth is the one that actually really no, I suppose sets I'm... up this ability to be queen. Yeah, and I'm I'm looking for problems here. I don't know why because it's unfair. Because the last last um, four that we've looked at, we've had. Canute the Conqueror, Henry the Second, the top scorer, Richard the Lionheart, the quintessential guy, and Edward the First. I mean, come on. So it's just those four are just all so good at being the same thing, really. If your tastes are medieval, then Elizabeth is not medieval. Yeah, exactly. So this this is actually I was just criticizing her for difference, really. But she she has something different what the yeah, others have. Yeah, yeah. And finally, of course, we've got William. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to frame this one. Well, he's in, he's in uh, Valhalla, in German Valhalla. Oh, he's okay. considered a, such a legend. There you go. Um, 
Voltaire said that, you know, he's not got the magnificence of Louis XIV, doesn't have that flair, that culture, that kind of stuff. No. But if you're looking for somebody who's powerful without being tyrannical, leading half of Europe with courage but not persecution, steadfast in just, you know, sort of defending... Who said that? Voltaire, who well, was you Louis XIV's biographer. I reckon Voltaire has got something about him. I reckon he can go far, that man, because that's exactly <laughs> what I was trying to say, but didn't have the words to say it. Mm. That's precisely it. He's... He's an achiever. Mm. He gets it done without rubbing anyone's back up the wrong way. And he, in the end, whether he wants it or not, he could have kicked up more of a fuss when these power, this power is being lost to the to Parliament. Mm. Didn't, which allows us to have our monarchy continue. And he he squares up to the most powerful chap in Europe, not from a position of power, and ends up in a position of power. Mm. I like him. I really, really like him. I know I've got a soft spot for him. Anyway, I think we're coming to an end there. So what we're going to happen now is that Ali and I mm. are going to get out our uh, our envelopes. Yes, pre-prepared. we are going to vote. After we've done this, when you've listened, you'll be able to vote yourself in an online survey where you pick your three favourite monarchs that you want to go through to the semi-final. All the details of how you can vote will be on our uh, on Facebook, on the, the blog, which you heard at the top of this programme. So, Ali and I will now vote. Yeah, I'm happy with that. In the envelope. Oh, this is too difficult, Graham, actually. It's too difficult. And sealed. I wouldn't, in the exam, <laughs> I'd just walk, draw a line through it and walk out. I'm crossing that one out. I'm crossing that one out. Well, who have I got left? Hang on. Oh, yes. Oh, Do yes. check that you have all six <laughs> monarchs. <laughs> I'd written one of them twice. <laughs> okay, and it's not the neatest. In fact, there's five scribbles out there, and I'm, I'm not happy, to be honest. I'm not happy at all, but I'm sealing up, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to defend this, because if I'd voted any other way, I wouldn't be able to defend it either. Throwing that down in disgust. Group B, Ali and I have voted. So, it is now up to you, the public. You can still change things, not that you know what you need to change. Go on to rexfactor.wordpress.com, look out for the link on Twitter and Facebook, and please, please do vote. Yes. You've got until March the 31st to complete this and the other uh, first round survey. So, until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio!